Welcome into the 11 Dubcast, a post-NFL draft edition of the Dubcast. And this was, you know, I think a lot of people were nervous about how this was going to go off and, and saying like, oh, it's going to be super weird. There's going to be glitches everywhere and it's not going to be fun and nobody's going to want to see it. And I don't think any of those concerns ended up being true. It was it was still entertaining. They had the highest ratings ever. Columbus in particular had the biggest market share of any major media market in the United States, which is kind of wild. Uh, this was a uh, look, I, I kind of dogged on the draft in recent years. This, I think was a pretty successful draft. Did you enjoy it? Andy, was this something that you like enjoyed actually perusing watching? Yeah, actually I was, I was kind of digging it now. I mean, you have to acknowledge that the bar is pretty low here. Like I think we're all so <laughs> starved for, Yes. sports that it's like this is the closest thing to normal athletic broadcast content we've had for a month and we were hungry and so i think that's part of it but yeah i'm, I'm like you my and again maybe it was because our expectations were super low there were a million reasons starting with the Bengals having the first overall pick uh that this could have gone horribly wrong <laughs> and it was actually i mean aside from you know, you had lots of Twitter chatter about ESPN, you know, day one, everybody uh, had a death or some horrible <laughs> addiction or right. the saddest or their dog got run over by a oil tanker. I don't know. Like there was some story. Uh, and then of course, after that, it was the Luke Bryan. Kind of, I mean, so there were these little quirky things, but overall, Hey, you know what? I actually, uh, I chuckled online about the fact that in a week's time, a month's time, we went from boats at the Bellagio to, yeah. you know, <laughs> hanging in the commissioner's man cave, you know. Yeah, hang like, on, Mr. Uh, Cooper. Yeah, that was that was Ro fun. Rogers Recliner, as I like, right. you know, from boats at the Bellagio to Rogers Recliner. But I, I was on board with it. And, and I think they, you know, credit to the people that put these things together, the producers and the, the IT folks and so on and so forth. It, hey, it came off without a hitch. It could have been a huge embarrassing failure for all involved. And it's pretty, pretty good draft. Yeah, it worked out. And honestly, like I would prefer the draft to be kind of in this format going forward. I don't need the giant flashy stuff. And that's I think that's a conversation that we can have uh, on another day. And it, it's something that I think warrants delving into much deeper because it really does say a lot about how we choose to consume mass media by virtue of this being so popular. I think I, I think that that's a larger discussion about how we consume this stuff. Uh, going forward but overall i thought it was really good um again it didn't have to devolve into a you know like a warner herzog um documentary <laughs> you know for like five seconds when they were describing the biographies of these people and they didn't have to have you know impromptu concerts every five seconds but that was in the service of raising a crap ton of money now the nfl here's the thing i'll say about that before we get into some of the draft picks and stuff just briefly uh, the NFL says that they raised like $100 million for COVID-19 research and, and uh, help and things like that, which is great. I'm really happy about that. Um, but I also am kind of um, I'm curious to see just how like much of that was a result of the fundraiser. But regardless, however, that ends up working out. They need to do that every year. That needs to be a yeah. fixture of the NFL draft because yeah, that, was a cool that is a huge opportunity to raise money. Um, I'm all about that. And I mean, the timeliness of it and, and the, the, the cause we were chuckling in uh, the, the, the team slack feed about the, the one item on the auction was watching a game in the 
the the fan cave there right. with the commissioner and it was you know i think in like the first 10 minutes it was open it was up to you know some five figure you know, 20 dollars bill and i said you know as far as charity auction items go that one's actually pretty cool for all everybody dogs on the commissioner i would totally go in his basement and watch a football cool. game with him like of just course. to sit there and and have unlimited m&ms i think is the description said uh and and talk football with a guy who literally does it for a living. Yeah, that'd be interesting to sit there and watch a game with somebody who is that immersed in the business of professional football. Yeah, why not? Let's now let's I, do that. So when I, I definitely think I would game plan for that. Like I'd start out real friendly and then kind of like get increasingly <laughs> more like confrontational as it went on. Um <laughs> and you and you hope Roger, you know, has had a pint or two and, and loosens right. up a little bit, you know. Kind of like how his wardrobe went from day one suit and tie too by the time we got to the last round you know it's like t-shirt and khakis roger you know that was yes. a that was a hoot and a holler i enjoyed that quite a bit uh let's talk a little about the the drafts draft picks because obviously that's kind of the the centerpiece of all this uh not a lot of huge surprises up top i mean you know obviously joe burrow i mean he's not a bucket yeah he's graduated from my city he's a bucket uh joe burrow goes to the Bengals, and that's pretty much all right cool beans uh jeff kuda ends up going to the lions chase young ends up going to the uh, washington redskins so all of that i think was pretty predictable but were there any were there any picks later on down the line that surprised you or any that you were like particularly happy or upset about something that like surprised you yeah, I mean the one, and this is a this is a two parter. So, and I've acknowledged on this podcast before that I'm the the odd duck on staff who is a born and raised Buckeye uh, who roots on Sundays for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. I, I was I was hoping, and, and uh, uh, a friend of mine in in the sports information department is also a Steelers fan, and so we were texting before the draft. You know, the Steelers didn't have a first round pick. And so we were talking about, okay, who, who comes in second, you know, there's some talk, okay, maybe they take a quarterback. You still wonder, you know, big Ben needs a, a better backup or a successor potentially. Um, you're, you're looking, you said, well, gosh, they really need a running back. Cause if Connor's injured as he was last season, they had, you know, no running game when Connor went out. So it kind of made sense. Hey, maybe you'd see a, maybe you would see a uh, running back there and, Oh, what running back would you like to see go to Pittsburgh? I'd love to have seen J.K. Dobbins go to Pittsburgh. You know, instead he goes to Baltimore, which, you know, is like an ice pick in my heart. But the one that just, <laughs> I think, floored me, and I'm not alone in this, I'm sure, in this room, is K.J. Hill falling, you know, darn near out of the thing. Yeah, that was wild. I, right. I, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I get that people get all jacked up about 40 times. But with the amount of game film you have on that guy, he's Mr. Reliable. Uh, I... I don't know. And, and maybe this goes back to me not being an NFL scout. So maybe I really am missing something, but it just seemed like we were universally caught off guard by how far he went. And so that to me was the steal of the draft was for the chargers to pick him up in the seventh round, because I think that guy's going to be money. He's going to be a guy who's going to be in the league for a long time. You know, some of the the middle picks surprised me. I, there were guys that I'm like, wow, I, I did not realize that they were so highly valued, right? Like Cornell and then, you know, even like, I don't know, even when you look at guys like Fuller 
I mean, it's, it's it's odd to me that someone like KJ Hill would fall so far, and then teams would look at some of the other players who are available from a high saying, "All right, well, let's take a flyer on these dudes." I mean, KJ Hill, all KJ Hill has is the most receptions in Ohio State history, right? Yeah. Like, I know he didn't run a great forty time. Four point six is not ideal for a wide receiver. I will not disagree with that, but I don't understand how somebody falls all the way to the seventh round. Uh, just based on that, really. I mean, the, yes, he doesn't have ideal size, but I just, yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to kind of square um, a guy who tortured cornerbacks, right, for years yeah. and then saw those same cornerbacks get drafted several rounds before him uh, in the NFL draft. So I, I it, that was the one I agree with you. That was one that kind of baffled me a little bit. I'm glad he finally did get drafted. but um, And those are the things in the NFL draft where you're just like, you scratch your head every year. There's something where you're just like, I don't know why they would bother doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it is what it is. And I think he's in a good situation. I think a lot of the Buckeyes ended up in good situations, especially, I mean, JK Dobbins, look, I'm a Bengals fan. I don't want JK Dobbins to dominate the Bengals and, you know, have all this great success necessarily. And, you know, on a macro scale, but on a micro scale for JK Dobbins himself, I think that is an incredibly good situation. Uh, you're behind a, running back who's you know not getting any younger i would say ingram has probably got a few more years left but he's not um gonna be there forever and then of course you've got like this mind-bending quarterback who can take all kinds of heat off of you in the running game so i'm excited about that i i want him to have a ton of success because i think he's earned it and now he's going to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he fell down as far as he did um and so and really in my opinion and uh, again there were some good running backs taken in the nfl draft but i really inferior in my opinion to jk dobbins you're gonna take taylor like i just i don't know so to me there were some things where if you're an ohio state fan you have a little bit of an axe to grind and you can root for some of these guys in the uh league to actually make an impact and kind of shut some people up uh you had 10 guys drafted big big number um and i think a lot of them have the opportunity to really do some fun things yeah i love that ohio state you know of course the first round uh you know passing usc with the first uh most first round picks in history i believe was the 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 data point and then ohio state tying for second among all schools with 10 players drafted you gotta love that seven in the top 100 gotta love that um and you know i think that's ohio state's biggest recruiting pitch right it's you know, you, you come to Ohio State and uh, you make the field, you're you're going to have your name called on Sunday. It's just really incredible. Um, and, and it's been that way for a long time, but particularly, you know, particularly in the Urban Meyer and Ryan Day era, it's just been you're seeing these, you know, double digit picks uh, almost year in, year out, it feels like. And then they go down through Larry Johnson's resume, the number of guys that he's had on the defensive line, the, the, the Boza brothers and now Chase Young. And I mean, there's uh, you just go back through any of these position groups, DBU. Is there any question that Ohio state is DBU over the last 20 years? No, there isn't, there is no question. The data, you know, speaks for itself. So, I mean, that's, it, and it's fun. You like watching these guys that you've rooted for on Saturday, you finally get to cash the paycheck, especially when you know some of their stories and, um, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, Ohio State's first round draft picks. And I think there was a, a, maybe a surprise pick for some folks. Didn't expect to see Damon Arnett sneak up into the first round, but you know what, man, <laughs> was there a guy who maybe got picked by a more ideal team in the entire draft oh than Arnett to the Raiders? I mean, that's, that's beautiful. That, 
Look, that's that's the sign that the universe bends, to, you know, in a in a in the direction of justice, right? Towards <laughs> the fact that he's going to Las Vegas, he's you know going with the Raiders. That's, I mean, yeah, you got it's beautiful. That. Yeah, beautiful. that's that is a sign that the universe can be a just place occasionally. Um, so that was, I agree, that was a lot of fun to see, and I don't know. I mean, overall, like I said, this was a, I think, a really fun draft. The larger question that we're going to have to talk about is. You know, what do these types of sporting events look like in the future? Yes. How much do we integrate the Internet and how much do we you know, try to do things like streaming and whatnot? Because I, the the mindset that creates this ridiculous event at the Bellagio and all this other stuff to me is super outdated. And if the NFL wants to kind of exist and perpetuate, you know, in, in perpetuity, can't talk today. If it wants to continue. All right. They're going to have to attract younger audiences. And I think that getting guys on boats and a fountain in front of a casino <laughs> may not be the way to do that going forward. So I, I, I will be interested to see what kind of lessons they learn from uh, this draft and, and what they see going forward. As far as Ohio State goes, I mean, th- this train just keeps on rolling. And I, I'm going to ask the question, and I, I'm curious about this. This is kind of the last thing before we move on to the next segment. But Andy... Is attrition a thing anymore for Ohio State? Like, should we just go ahead and like, like expect that no matter how many dozens of players end up going to the NFL draft, Ohio State should just continue like rolling this. This should not be a problem for them. We should just celebrate it, but not worry. Is well, is that your attitude at this point? Yeah, yeah I, absolutely, it is. Because you think about you know a week ago, two weeks ago, we've been talking about the unbelievable clip uh, that Ryan Day and his staff have been on from a recruiting standpoint. Right. I mean, my my gosh, they're number one with a bullet in the recruiting class rankings. And so as long as you're continuing to bring in that volume of talent, okay, now you've tapped the transfer portal and you've, you've brought in, you know, perhaps the best quarterback in the country next season um, through through the transfer portal, one of the, the, the top two, three quarterbacks in the country last season already, you know, so you, you're now at a point and, and have been for a few years now where you can go and get pretty much anybody you want uh, at any position. I mean, where, where's the, where's the hole? And, and you realize these things can change and, and so on over time. But I mean, one of the things about being the 800 pound gorilla, you know, when you've got momentum behind you, this thing becomes sort of a self um, fulfilling prophecy in that you, you see all these guys go and cash that first round paycheck uh, day one of the NFL draft. And if you're a kid sitting there trying to make a decision, how many people tweeted out during the draft that, Hey, if you get an offer from Ohio state commit, then, uh, I, I saw that tweet from a dozen different people. It felt felt like, I mean, and I'm not talking about <laughs> random jabronis on the internet, but I mean like real people who right. matter. I mean, that that's a heck of a sales pitch. And so then you're able to bring in those four and five star guys uh, with ease and because they, you know, they know. And so then those guys go in and get drafted and so on and so forth. I, I just don't worry about personnel management all that much because it's such a well-oiled machine at as long as you have that infrastructure uh, in place and succession plans for, you know, the key people in those roles, like, you know, Mark Pantone and so on, you hope they're going to be here forever and a day. But, you know, as long as that infrastructure is there, what, what's there to worry about? Right. 
Yeah, and that, and I honestly like I'm I'm of the same mind. And look, if Evan Ravenel is out there and, and telling <laughs> me to go to Ohio State, yes, then then I'm sorry, you got to go to Ohio State because Rav is incredible and he's an amazing presence on Twitter. And he is frankly, an underrated he tweeter. Do it totally underrated so, tweeter. If you're not oh, following gosh. Ravenel, and if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter just to follow Ravenel. He's, he's yes, a, he's I agree. Don't follow follower. us. Follow yeah, follow yeah, yeah. Rav. Yeah, absolutely. He is a fantastic. Uh, tweeter so hopefully we get to see all these hypotheticals in action like actually on the field sometime soon because it's great to draft these guys and it's great to talk about the new recruits coming in for Ohio State but until they actually play games uh, it's going to be kind of difficult I think to sustain that enthusiasm for months and months and months so hopefully we can get back to some semblance of normalcy we've seen all kinds of suggestions and and talk about what it's going to look like in the future um, but that's actually kind of the subject of our next segment here. So we're going to bring on uh, Hunter Sharpless. He's a senior editor at Flow Sports, covers all kinds of different collegiate sports. And we're going to talk about the finances of the NCAA and what that's going to look like going forward with the situation that we now find ourselves in. Hunter, it's, uh, it's, it's glad, I'm glad to talk with you. You and I, you and I work together uh, a little bit because one of the sites you write for is Flow Wrestling. And, and so we worked together on some wrestling content. But I was really uh, intrigued last week. You had a really in-depth series, a few different articles about the financing of big-time college sports. And, and you took a look at a few different angles. Um, one of the sports you cover closely is hockey. And so you pose the question, what's the future for hockey if there is no football? Can you walk us through um, the reporting you did? Because you did a lot of in-depth, data-driven reporting. Kind of what, what pushed you into looking into the numbers and, and what did you find? Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. Thanks for coming. For sure. Um, yeah. So like Andy said, uh, you know, at Flow, I've been kind of a Swiss army knife over the last few years, really working on a lot of stuff for y'all who don't know Flow Sports. We uh, stream live events and that's it for 20 something sports. So we cover everything from bowling to, you know, CAA football, James Madison and those schools and uh, to, to lots of wrestling and track and that sort of thing. So this project that I've been working on recently, looking into finances in the NCAA, started with the question of what what would be the the theoretical or possible impact of football either being altered or moved or uh, you know in some way um, you know not normal football this fall. What would be the impact not just to football and to the NCAA, but specifically to non-revenue sports. Um, and that's because that's what we at Flow, you know, that's what we love. That's what we kind of follow. Even in the major sports that we do cover, um, they're kind of these underserved communities um, that don't have big national uh, media followings, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of the first take I did was, you know, let's let's start to unpack this question of what, what it would happen theoretically to wrestling programs and track programs and hockey programs uh, if we were to lose all of the, the quite substantial revenue, obviously, that football brings in. Um, a very interesting question. Like, there's a lot there uh, that I've started to unpack. But it's also like, you know, there's so much conjecture and speculation. And that's the whole thing for me with this the coronavirus ordeal now beginning, you know, whatever the seventh week of quarantine is like the information that I thought I knew like three weeks ago 
is not, <laughs> you know, it's not the same information that I have today. And it just, everything is moving so, so rapidly. It's super wild. Hunter, um, as, yeah. as you dug in and started to look at how finances and, and you, I mean, you really got into the, into the weeds on uh, revenue and where schools at different tiers, uh, whether we're talking about power five schools or, you know, outside the, the elites, um, the elite of the elites on the revenue side, uh, where, where their money comes from, whether it's donors, ticket sales, uh, media rights and so on. You looked at the, the expense side as well. And the huge, uh, run up of expenses that we've seen in big time college athletics over the last 15 years, let's say, for example. But but let, let's let's start with this big picture question. Are there any are there any trends that you noticed? Are there any similarities between these schools? Are there any general broad conclusions or 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 is every school kind of its own unique uh, special creature when it comes to where the money comes from and where it goes? Yeah, it's. I mean, I very quickly, I think, pivoted from this conjectural question of what may happen in the fall to, wow, like the, the, for me, almost the more interesting question is how we've gotten to where we are, which is a pretty precarious spot, to be frank, for most athletic programs in the country. Uh, and, and those things that, you, that you're saying, or those were what I was looking at, you know, over the past 15 or so years, what have happened to, you know, what's happened to spending, what's happened to revenue. Um, you know, the first thing that I kind of learned was that you know, the, the power five is definitely its own, its own animal. Uh, and schools within that, even if it's Ohio State or, um, you know, maybe not a top school like Iowa State, you know, a smaller school, but still within a power five conference, schools within any of these conferences for the most part, rely really on three main revenue streams. Um, and, and Ohio State's uh, revenue sheet in 2018 is a great example of this. Um, but for Power Five schools, ticket sales, uh, media and conference distributions, and donor contributions are really the, the kind of three main uh, legs that, that their athletic departments um, kind of stand on. There's some other, you know, uh, Corporate sponsorship and things like that have started to take off. It really depends on the school. For Texas, you know, here in Austin, for example, um, lots of media here, lots of uh, opportunities there, so much so that the schools reports that 22% of UT's uh, revenue in 2018 um, came from that category. So that's, that's one thing was kind of distinguishing between Power 5 schools that even if they're a smaller school within a conference, they still get a pretty good chunk of cash um, from, uh, from all three of those, those categories. So that was the first interesting thing. I think, you know, outside of the Power Five, it is really, it's really no man's land, to be honest. Like schools are, are addressing their finances in a lot of different ways. They're, they're creating money and revenue in a lot of different ways. Um, it's hard to, so right now for, for wrestling specifically for flow wrestling, uh, tomorrow or, or Tuesday, we'll see how the Mondays, uh, go, but, um, I'm working on a, a long, um, dive into one school. So old dominion, um, uh, you know, pretty decent sized school, pretty decent sized athletic department, kind of in the seventies in terms of expenses and revenues. 
Uh, they just cut their wrestling program. Um, they have jumped from you know FCS to the FBS for football in the last 10 years, joining the Conference USA. They just spent $67.5 million on football stadium renovations. So they're like a really, really interesting case study. Um, Old Dominion uh, charges a lot. Um, I believe it's the, the number in 2018 was 63% of their athletic department revenue came from student fees. So it's about 20, $28 million. And this is literally just a fee that is charged to every single student in the school. They don't you know, have the option to pay that or not. Like that's just kind of more or less part of their tuition. And, and that's that not was, super unusual either for a lot of schools. Not, no, not super unusual. Um, I would say, you know, some schools, like I'm looking here at Arizona State, for example, in 2018, they, they found 11 million bucks in student fees. So some Power 5 schools will use it to kind of supplement, but there are quite a few schools outside of the Power 5 that are part of this, like, let's get their arms race. Uh, you know, let's let's kind of level up in conference. Let's level up and hopefully get to the Power Five that are finding student fees a pretty, for them, effective way to to garner a lot of revenue. A lot of those schools don't have anywhere near the, um, you know, the ticket sales, let alone you know the donor distribute the donor uh, bases, and definitely the media distributions outside of the Power Five or are much slimmer. So I would say, you know, like inside the power five, of course, there's lots of difference. Um, but there, there are a few things that a lot of schools have in common outside of the power five. It's wild west. Every school is different. You know, I'm working on this old dominion piece. I feel like I could write the, the same deep dive into every non P five school and get a million different pieces. It'd be exciting. And it, you know, be done in a few years, but, um, it's, it's really, it's really a different story out there. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, the other kind of really basic main point takeaway is that over the last 15 years, I mean, most schools, even schools with the smallest athletic budgets, which is around four or 5 million, most schools have doubled or tripled uh, their spending and, and basically their expenses too. And that to me was, was really shocking. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because you had a you had an interesting graphic in in one of the pieces you published, and, and you just picked a, a a sampling of some P five schools. I think you looked at Arizona State, Michigan, uh, which is a school listeners will be familiar with, North Carolina, mm-hmm. Tennessee, and Texas. And in each of those, from two thousand five to two thousand eighteen, uh, all of them but North Carolina saw triple digit increases. So I think uh, North Carolina was an 88% increase over that uh, 13-year period. And and Arizona State was the leader out of the clubhouse at 219% increase. I mean, from 39 million, 39.7 million to 126.8 million in 13 years. I mean, as you looked at those numbers, uh, did your jaw hit the floor or was that kind of what you expected? Oh, it, it absolutely hit the floor. You know, I. Um... I'm someone who I've grown up around sports. Both my parents went to UT. I bled burn orange for, for a long time before I went to Iowa, actually, for undergrad. You know, I, I've been around sports my whole life. I love sports. I love college football. And I think that I'm not, you know, 
I'm at least like of average of intelligence, you know, like I consider myself decently smart. But when I started digging into this, I was like, wow, the, you know, this, the, the rise from early 2000s to where we are now, you know, once I start to kind of think about it, it makes a little bit more sense when you think about recruiting and, and uh, stadiums and coaches' salaries and coaches' severances, uh, you know, knock, knock, Nebraska. Um, once you start to, to think about those things, maybe it makes a little more sense. But still, you know, I, for one, was, was pretty surprised that across the board, big school, small school, power five, east, west, midwest, you know, schools are spending a whole lot more than they were 10, 15 years ago. So I have, I guess, a macro question and a micro question. I'll start with the the larger view first. I mean, Ohio State usually claims pretty much the exact same amount of expenditures and revenues every year. So if you've got $200 million coming in, they, they say they spend $200 million. Can a school like Ohio State, which does not take student fees, whether something where you lose 10 to 15% in terms of your, I don't know, media rights or sponsorships and ticket sales, which I actually did not realize. I, I, I mean, on the stats and stuff that's been provided here, I, I'm looking at 34% of Ohio State's total revenues as ticket sales. I did not realize it was anywhere close to that high. Can Ohio State sustain an academic uh, department that has literally dozens of varsity sports uh, even for a year or two where you have 10 to 15% less revenue coming in? Yeah. Uh, you know, frankly, it's a great question. And, and my answer is super unhelpfully. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but it's honest. Uh, it's an honest answer though. Right. Like that's cause you're right. Like nobody knows at this point. I, I, and I think that's, what's so interesting about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, Again, like I, I feel like I, I started into this question of, well, what the heck is this virus going to do? Um, you know, there are so many other, uh, you know, issues. School, a lot of schools are expecting lower enrollment in the fall. They've already lost March Madness revenue. They've already lost so much revenue, uh, you know, from having kids in the dorms and sending them home and refunding that and having them, kids working on campus jobs and the food, you know, spending everything like that. There's so many issues that all coalesce into, you know, also affect this athletic issue. And um, I don't know, you know, I, I think that my, my hope is that my, my kind of baseline hope is that sports don't get cut. And, and, and that well, obviously football is going to be fine, but for sure. a school like Ohio state that has a really robust holistic athletic program and lots of great programs, um, I think that uh, my hope would be that with all of the factors that they have, that they will be okay, that they'll be able to take, um, you know, a brief, uh, if it's one to two years to take a hit, but after that to kind of keep spending relatively low in the few years following to make up for that. Um, because everybody has been, you know, from my point of view has, has been kind of involved in this arms race. And I, this isn't, I don't think, just an NCAA deal. I mean, I'm a big soccer fan, big European soccer fan, and clubs over there are, are really struggling, like professional big five European soccer teams. And part of it has been like the transfer bubble that has happened over there with school with the clubs spending astronomical numbers. So I do not think that this is an NCAA-only uh, problem. You know, you know, Ohio State was one of three schools 
in 2018 to report over $200 million in revenue. Obviously, they're going to take a big hit this year, no matter what happens to football. But I think that these types of schools, and there aren't that many, will be okay. It is kind of the other ones, you know, that that I do worry a lot more about. Right. And that, that was kind of that. my... Well, that was actually going to be kind of my my micro question, because let's say that you're a high school senior this year and like I'm I'm a high school teacher. I've got students who are going to D1 schools, um, but they're not playing football. Right. So they're they're playing like, you know, women's soccer and rowing and things like that. Do those students in the immediate future, do you think they should be concerned about the status of their scholarships or the status of their sport, even at those schools? Um, or is that something that maybe felt like a little bit? farther down the line as opposed to something in the immediate future. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's, there's a lot more, there are a lot of factors that complicate the issue. Probably the, the foremost of which is title nine, yeah. um, you know, schools that need the schools that have to, to, that may have a, an extra varsity sport. That's a men's sport. Um, that's where, you know, that's why as a wrestling fan, I, I do get a little, um, scared uh, about certain schools, and I've not gone into every single. Yeah, and all this is public information, but I haven't gone into every athletic department and looked at the Title IX implications and if schools may cut sports. You know, so far, uh, you know, Old Dominion cut the wrestling program. They said they were making the decision before the coronavirus situation even happened. Um, Cincinnati cut their men's soccer program. I haven't really taken a deep dive into that athletic department yet uh you know again super not helpful i don't know i i I would say it's really really a case-by-case basis um with uh with those kind of weighed title nine implications um there were some athletic directors or or commissioners of, of some smaller conferences who basically asked the ncaa to relax some regulations um, for, for the few years in the foreseeable future, NCAA said no. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think that if NCAA holds their line as far as, uh, you know, requiring these, these balanced, uh, equitable athletic departments that hopefully will not have to cut sports, hopefully those smaller programs will, will still be here in a few years um, and that schools will be able to get help uh, in some other ways. But, um, Ohio State, yeah, you mentioned the, the numbers earlier. It's really an interesting um, kind of revenue sheet in terms of the percentages of these, these categories that they're getting compared to a lot of, a lot of other schools. But yeah, there's, there's a lot here. Your colleague, and you, you brought up Title IX, but your, your colleague, Andrew Spey at Flow Wrestling, um, had an interesting thread on Twitter when Old Dominion announced that they were cutting their wrestling program. And that was about the same time that, that um, Cincinnati was cutting their soccer program. Um, and and Spay made the point that, you know, a D1 football program is expensive, particularly when you move, as, as you noted, ODU did up to the, the big leagues of the FBS. Um, and so with the NCAA requiring men's seven men's programs, you know, you look and say, okay, football, basketball are the revenue sports. And then, and then, so after that, you know, anything beyond that seven sport minimum, in a non-revenue space, you know, could be, could be easy pickings for an athletic director needs to cut budget, you know, some sports. And it's interesting to get down into the weeds into how different sports are funded at different schools. Uh, because you look and say, you know, sports like golf and tennis 
may be self-funding because of the kind of kids and, and wealthy backgrounds that the student athletes come from. Uh, you know, sports like baseball might be more rooted in regionally if you're in the Southeast. You know, so there's there's a lot of different factors that come into play, um, but but there's a, a line, right? If you kind of looked at your local program, stacked up the uh, expenses top to bottom, you, you might look and say, okay, the most expensive programs are the ones that are in the deepest hole every year on the non-revenue side in men's sports could, could be, uh, you know, on the chopping block. Is that, is that how you see it after you looked at the data? I, I think so, unfortunately. Um, but the, for me, like the unfortunate, the other really kind of crappy thing for, for non-revenue sports is that outside of the power five football is, is not really a revenue sport. <laughs> like, like football actually, um, it costs so much money at so many other schools outside of the Power Five. In the Power Five schools, it does cost a ton of money, but they're able to make it up with all of the mostly, the, you know, the media and the ticket sales. But for example, Old Dominion, which I've been looking really in depth at, it costs them more than two times uh, operating expenses per participant uh, for football than it does for wrestling, which they just cut. Football obviously has a whole lot more players on the roster. It has bigger, uh, you know, facilities needs. It has bigger um, coaches' salaries. Everything is more expensive for football. So, like, I've started to think about football outside of the Power Five, not as a revenue sport, but actually as an expense sport. It just Mm -hmm. costs a whole lot of money. And those schools outside of the Power Five are, are almost never um, making it up and uh, making up the, the expenses with revenues and old dominions at really case in point. Um, again, you have two and a half times, basically more per athlete, uh, for football than for wrestling, but, but athletic directors, they like football, right? The, the argument is kind of like football is more popular. Football will help increase, uh, you know, our donor base. Um, it's the, it's the sport that, that everybody wants to kind of level up with. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that those are the scenarios uh, that could be dangerous for those other sports if they already have, you know, the the seven uh, the seven men's varsity sports. It's just it's just a fascinating catch twenty two. It's it's weird yeah. because you you have football as this driver of this revenue, and you know you you don't want to force students to have to foot the bill at you know twenty percent of whatever the operating budget is in some of these cases. Um, but on the other hand, like if you have a sustainable football program, you can avoid that. If you're not big enough to have a sustainable football program, you want to get to that point. But the only way to do it is a supplement with student, uh, you know, adding their own like a- athletic fees and things like that. It's just it's it's wild to me that the whole system seems to be centered around this one sport. And if that one sport isn't successful, then nothing works. And I I in my opinion, what's been happening is that at the top at at places like Ohio state and Alabama, it's worked for them, right? You haven't had student activity fees and things like that. Um, And other schools see that. And it's an aspirational thing where they want to get to that point, but like it hasn't been working for the large majority of these athletic departments. And so they've had to supplement that. And, And I don't know, my, my question to you would be, do you think Ohio state will look at this and go, okay, well, these other schools like football hasn't done it for them, right? So it, it's not making up that revenue gap. And what they've done is they've looked at student activity fees. Do you think that schools like Ohio State 
and you know Alabama and all and so on, are they going to look at student activity fees as a means to make up that lost revenue for this year at least? I don't know. This is a complicated thing because I, you know, tuition has obviously gone up. I don't have exact figures in front of me, but over the last what you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years, tuition has been steadily rising. I, I have I, I my gut would say I don't think that student fees that charging students more would be um, the first kind of uh, the first gut reaction for the school to do. Um, you know, I kind of wonder wonder about donor bases and, and like you know schools, a combination of aggressively cutting as many expenses as they can, plus really petitioning donors uh, and maybe just trying to hold the line for a year or two and then get back. But probably when they get back, have a little bit more of an austere approach uh, in, in terms of their spending. That's just kind of like what, what I feel like would happen. Um, because like I said, you know, t- tuition has been going up so much. I, I, it's hard to see a huge university like Ohio. I mean, it can make a lot of money, but I don't know um, that they would do that. Interesting. Hunter, last question for you here. This has been, I think, really insightful. But as you as you looked into the huge rise in expenses of these athletic departments, uh, different sizes and scopes, but we were looking at, you know, 219% increase in expenses over a 13-year period for a school like Arizona State. What's your sense of where the biggest chunk of that extra money, let's say, is gone? Is that just, you know, the general march of uh, inflation, so to speak, or lifestyle creep? But is it is it facilities? Is it, you know, we look at coaching salaries a lot every time, uh, you know, a new coach comes on board, he makes more money. You know, where, where do you see the biggest chunk of the money going in terms of this this outsized growth in spending over the past 15 years? Yeah, again, you know, a little different for every school, but I think in all kind of what I've seen is that it's, it's a little bit in every category. Um, a lot of schools, you know, most schools are spending more in every category than they were back in 2005. Um, sometimes those percentages go up and down and, um, you know, different stuff. Ohio State, you know, they're spending uh, higher percentages in both coaches' compensation and support and admin compensation that also includes uh, severance for old coaches. Um, that makes up 39% uh, of their uh, 2018 expenses, and that's something that um, has has really, really risen. So for me, it's kind of like the facilities arm race is, is one thing, and then parallel to that is the coaches' salaries are just – really, really a lot of money. Um, and especially in this, like aggressively let's fire everybody, but also the contracts that they're getting, you know, have them making a lot of money if they do get fired. Uh, that has been a, a pretty substantial part of it. Um, really looking at any expense sheet, you're going to see probably in between 30 and 40% of their expenses have to do with salaries. Uh, I made the you know the joke about Nebraska earlier. I went to Iowa, so I don't really apologize to Husker fans. <laughs> but um, you know they've had their their very uh, interesting, ineffective coaching carousel over there, and it <laughs> certainly has cost them money. If you pull up um, their their expenses there, it's not a walk in the park, and and that to me is like something that's a bit of a bubble. You know, I, I don't know that you need that 
that coaches are going to be able to drive. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know that coaches are going to be able to drive those kinds of um, contracts in the future when schools are are needing to be a lot careful with with their expenses. Um, and you know, like like I said, I grew up a big Texas fan. Uh, been to some amazing Texas football games. I was at the the '04. Uh, Michigan Rose Bowl the year before Texas won the national championship. Um, went to some awesome games. When when I remember like going to those games and you know and watching Texas, I'm 30, so you know like kind of late 90s Texas football with Ricky Williams and into the Major Applewhite area uh, era was kind of my first, you know my my first stuff that I have these visceral memories about. You know when I like think about that time of college football. When, when schools were spending a third of what they're spending now, I don't, I don't think it was like worse. Like I, I struggled to see, right. I guess, how football is three times better than it was in the early 2000s when schools were spending a lot less money. So that's the question that I feel like has started to haunt me is like, is the end product uh, of, of all of this making sports better, whether that's football or, or other sports. You know, I think about really vibrant high school athletic departments that have a whole bunch of different sports. I was a high school teacher for a few years um, that, and I loved going to every, everything that, that I could, you know, it's such a cool part of a school. Um, one last old dominion thing, you know, they did make this jump from uh, up to the FBS into the conference USA. I think it was in 2013 or 2014 they had a couple okay years. I think they went to a bowl once. Um, they went one and eleven in the conference USA this year with a three point win over like Norfolk State is is their one win. Um, they they and this is part of a more nationwide trend, but they've seen three years of declining uh, attendance at their football stadium, which they just spent a lot of money on. Um, but before they jumped up they had actually really similar and sometimes higher attendance numbers. And this was when they were spending a lot less on their football program, but they were still getting 20,000 people, 19,000 people to that stadium. And I just want to, to kind of ask this question and think about this question of like, you know, what, what is this arms race? Like what is the race to the power five and, and why do we, why is that like inherently better to athletic directors or to, to donors, to people who are hyping this race up. Um, why is that better than these really great programs that are, have great community engagement at smaller levels? That's the thing that I think has sort of like kind of alarmed me when I look at these spending uh, habits over time. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that there's so many things to dig into here. And uh, obviously you guys with Ohio state, um, I think that it's a school that will be able to weather the storm, hopefully does not cut sports and, and will be able to, to come out of this on the other side. Hunter, I thank you. It's been a really uh, in-depth discussion and I'm, I'm grateful for the reporting you're doing. If you're uh, interested in number of the sports we're talking about, you can follow Hunter and uh, his writing at flow wrestling, flow hockey, flow FC, all part of the flow sports franchise. Hunter Sharpless. Thanks for joining us on the Dubcast. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Hunter Sharpless for coming on and having a really great and engaging discussion with us. I That was awesome. That's something that has to be talked about and will be talked about 
uh, for a long, long time going forward, even as we get back into some semblance of normalcy. It's it's an hugely, hugely important thing uh, to think about and talk about. It's something that I've written about extensively on the site, and we're going to have to make some hard choices, I think, as um, college sports fans. But let's get to Ask Us Anything. Um, and also, before we do that, I do want to remind you that the 11 uh, Dubcast is sponsored by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. So drygoods.11warriors.com. Um, and if you want to send us questions to ask us anything, please do so to dubcast at 11warriors.com. And we've got a question this week from Matt Wiggins. This is a really good one. I'm excited about this. So he says, thanks again for getting us through this sports drought with an entertaining weekly podcast. Oh, well, you're welcome, Matt. Uh, with all the normal markings of time gone, which is absolutely true. I don't even know what day it is. No. Uh, <laughs> the fact that your podcast keeps showing up every Tuesday is one of the few things that keeps me sane besides trash pickup on Fridays. I'm good. I'm glad that you can set your watch, uh, slash sundial to the 11 dubcast, Matt. I, that's, that's good. That's good to know that we're keeping you on an even keel. Um, here's his question. He says, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Enneagram, the personality typing system that gives you a one through nine, but he would like to hear our speculation on the Enneagram numbers of some Ohio State personalities, more specifically coaches. So Meyer, Trestle, Day, Kerry Combs, we got to slip in there, I think. Uh, so here's the thing. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, right, it's one of those personality type tests that's used to kind of determine what your strengths are as a you know thinker and an engager and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the nine types that we got here uh, are the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. And you can be one or a combination of many several kinds. And, you know, they use these in like businesses and schools, all kinds of stuff to just kind of do little personality tests and whatnot. Um, I believe I took this in high school. I think if I'm remembering correctly, uh, I was like a combination of like five, six, and nine, maybe something like that. Um, I don't know. Andy, have you ever taken this, the Enneagram test? Yeah. So one of my dearest friends in the in the world is is big on the Enneagram thing, and she was on a kick about it on her podcast a few years ago. So okay. I thought, oh, what what the hey, I'm just going to take it. Uh, and and so my two types that were, were most prevalent were were the helper and the enthusiast. Oh, there you um, go. And so. You know, and then they they walk through and tell you then your second highest type. So I was I was tied between something called the challenger and the achiever. So yay me! Uh, and then there's this big long report that tells you how to interpret these things. And uh, you know, sometimes when I take these, because I've done the Myers Briggs assessment in the past, yeah. Um, yeah. the one I always found most interesting for me personally was the Gallup Strengths Finder program. Um, so Don Clifton at Gallup years and years ago, um, wrote a book called, I think it was, uh, uh, soar with your strengths. And, and, and it's this, this great story it starts with the analogy of, you know, a fish and a, a rabbit go to school. And, you know, when, when uh, rabbit was doing running and jumping, he was very happy. Um, but then when he got to, um, swimming and climbing class, he did terrible and he flunked out of flying. And so what yeah. do we do in school and you being an educator, maybe this will resonate, you know, what we, what we do typically when we find we have a weakness like rabbit does with, uh, climbing and flying and swimming, we put you in remedial flying and climbing and swimming instead of saying, you know what, rabbit, you're pretty good at running and jumping. Right. So we should give you more running and jumping so you can get better. You can soar with your strengths right? instead of getting frustrated as a student and so on and so forth. So That's the strengths finder thing was all about 
pulling out your signature strengths, your themes, and saying, you know what, you should focus on being as good as you can be in those areas of your life. So I always like this, but these are all kind of flavors of, you know, really the, the same um, batch of ice cream, right? It's, it's all about, you know, so sometimes when you take these things, I think most of us walk away and be like, oh, yep, that's, that's me. Very rarely have I been in one of these with somebody where they get their results and they're just like, that's not me at all. This thing's that's broken. Right. Normally you're like, oh yeah. Cause there's always some, there's always some sop to your ego in these things, right? That right. Exactly. Like, oh, sure. That sounds like a good thing. So like mine, you know, being the helper, well, who doesn't want to be the helper? That sounds wonderful. Or the achiever. Oh yes, of course I'm an achiever. It's never the jackass. You know? I was going to say, it'd be really funny if like there were eight really positive ones and like the nine were like the douchebag. Like, oh, right, 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 right. Miserable <laughs> bastard. That's, that's me. Ah. <laughs> I okay, thought I was so, going to get the reformer, but no, I'm the douchebag. No, no, no. Well, digging that, into the, the the coaching implications that's right. of, of these, uh, I laughed because one of mine I said was the enthusiast. And, uh, you know, Carrie Combs, there you go. That's the enthusiast. Like, <laughs> right. All right, that, we'll just call that the Red Bull Enneagram number. And You wouldn't even have, with Carrie Combs, so yes, he is the enthusiast. He's the busy, fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, and scattered. Um, I don't know. Could you say someone's scattered when they create hashtags on Twitter that long? I mean, you know, that's that's dedication. That's somebody who's clearly, you know, got a train of thought that they're going to take to the very end. Here it is. No, see, at their best, sevens, that's the the enthusiast, are are bountiful, thoughtful, accomplished, versatile, uh, passionate. Of course, it says content and quiet. I'm like, I don't know if that one goes. But yeah, Yeah, where you're drinking water, you're a kicker. I don't know if that's particularly like that but that's that's okay yeah 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 see it's not where would you okay how about this so as a big fan of of the senator where would you put jim tressel where would you oh that's great that's that's great and and yeah you you said it right like my uh my undying fealty to the distinguished gentleman from youngstown so I, i think there are a few things um, I like the one on here and these are just on names only the, the type that's called the loyalist. Is there mm-hmm. ever a man more loyal to the institution than Jim Trestle, you know, fall on the sword, uh, you know, take one for the team, it, bleed scarlet and gray. He is the man, but, but also the challenger, right. You know, so he comes in and, and is, uh, able to lay down the gauntlet that in 300 and how many ever days it is, you will be proud. You know, we will make the great state of Ohio proud. Now he challenges, uh, throws down the challenge and you know that's hey i'm all about that uh yeah Here's i like that thing. so i think the loyalist is a really good one for him maybe less so the challenger but the reason why i would say the loyalist is because and i don't know i don't know if the loyalist is necessarily the right word for what i'm thinking maybe the investigate i don't know but the point that i'm making is that jim trestle was a witch and he <laughs> he <laughs> Had a, he had a staff, he had coaches that coached with him, and some of them were very good, right? Like Haycock, great coach. Yes. Uh, I mean, Fickle, of course, was on his staff, great coach, doing what yes. he did. But he also had Nick Siciliano and Jim Bowman. And, like, Trestle basically selected those dudes because he was like, look, they want me to have a full staff. <laughs> I'm required to have a full staff. I'll put those dudes on the staff. They'll do what I tell them to do, and that'll be that. I'm going to coach yeah. special teams. I'm going to decide what the offense looks like. I'm going to let Haycock do whatever he wants to do on defense, but I'm going to step in when I need to. But he did everything. That guy did – I really think the most underrated aspect of Jim Trestle as a head coach was just how 
much influence he had on the teams that he was the coach of. Uh, that dude was just doing everything. And it's hilarious to think of him as like, he was not like this, you know, overseer of a program. This guy was intimately involved with every possible thing that he absolutely could be. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the, you know, the guy who just wants to be there for everything, I think like, you know, the loyalist, the investigator, I think that's probably a pretty good, um, selection for him. What, what, what I think urban Meyer is pretty easy, honestly. Like, I think that's the guy that's the achiever, right? Like that's gotta be a dude who's like, you know, all about that or the individualist maybe, but like somebody who's just like, yes, on it. Yeah. The achiever for sure. I mean, is, is. The other one I like, and this is going back to the Strengths Finder one. So one of my signature themes uh, in Strengths Finder is one that uh, they call Maximizer. So your your deal is not uh, taking something that's broken and making it good. It's but taking something that's that's good and making it exceptional. So you look at an Urban Meyer, and you know everywhere he went, he left kind of the exceptional version. So you go into um, actually that, well. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you to correct myself. I think the challenger actually works even better than that. Um, self-confident, decisive, willful, confrontra- confrontational. I think there that's, you go. that might be more appropriate, actually. Yeah, that's a good one. Because that's what he's all about, right? He was all about like challenge and confrontation and like you know rising to an occasion and all that stuff. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Urban Meyer was a psychology major. I didn't know that. That's interesting. I I, I read that somewhere some sports writer which would make sense right like and a lot of good coaches a lot of great coaches have been you know that that's the field of study that they've had or in the case of jim tressel who has the same academic background that i do uh is in education right like he's got his master's in education that's what he ended up doing um after he left uh his undergrad well and and look at him now right Uh, right exactly president of a university i mean it fits right in uh yeah that's that's brilliant uh, you know, I want to go, this is random aside, but you got me thinking about coaching trees and, and Jim Tressel because he, he is my favorite by far sure. uh, of, of the Ohio State coaches of my lifetime anyway. Um, but looking at his coaching trees, really interesting. So quite a few of his former assistants became division one, either, either college or NFL head coaches. Uh, and it's interesting to go down through this list and look at, okay. Tim, Tim Beckman had uh, stints at Toledo in Illinois. Uh, okay. Right. Maybe not super successful. Mark <laughs> D'Antonio. Hey, you know what? That guy, pretty good at coaching college football, all things considered. Maybe, uh, maybe the latter part of his uh, tenure at Michigan State was suboptimal. Maybe uh, he suffered from some of the same loyalty <laughs> related yeah. issues as, uh, as his mentor. But hey, Luke Fickle, you know what? That guy looks like he might be a pretty good might be a pretty good college football coach. Uh, Rowing the boat, PJ Fleck is in the the trestle coaching tree. Uh, but hey, here we got one not so good. Daryl Daryl Hazel, uh, you know, right. decent tenure at Kent State, not so good at uh, at, at Purdue. Yeah. Uh, likewise, Paul Haynes at Kent State, you know, maybe maybe not super exciting. Um, but the, John Haycock, Mark Mangino, Mark Snyder, all ones that are maybe in the less exciting. Right. But Mel Tucker, <laughs> hey, now all of a sudden, you know what? Mel Tucker is looking like he's off to a decent start at Spartyville. So yes. it's interesting to me, though, that this many years later, you've still got that many guys in the trestle coaching tree, right? Um, at you know, at at decent sized schools with Fick, Fleck, and and Tucker. Um, 
that's, you know, not a bad coaching resume for a guy who I think didn't necessarily have one of the most universally acclaimed coaching trees to be as successful as Trestle was. Well, he's definitely not a guy that people point to, right? Right. When they say, like, this is the amazing coaching tree, you know. Exactly, yeah. But they should. I mean, I think that's a good point. I think they definitely should think about that. Uh, Last thing before we get out of here. Okay, number nine, the peacemaker. The easygoing, self-effacing type. Receptive, reassuring, agreeable, and complacent. (laughs) Like, I know that last adjective is not something that you would probably apply to any college football coach. But prior to that, do you think there's any college football coach that could apply to the peacemaker could be the easygoing self-effacing type. We, the, the guy I think of as soon as you were reading that was, is Larry Johnson, you know, on the current there staff, you go. because I, he's, he's maybe my favorite character on the, the, the current coaching staff just seems like maybe the most genuinely likable human being on the planet. Uh, he always seems like, you know, he's just positive, upbeat players love him. Um, yeah. you, you follow him on Twitter and his, his little, you know, emoji when he, when he sends out a boom for a commitment, it's just, you know, every, it, it, wholesome. It's kind of a guy. And so I, <laughs> you know, while you, you know, he's out there on the field, you know, giving guys the business, you get the impression. He's also not the guy who's, you know, knocking him upside the head, calling him, uh, so-and-so blankety blank, you know, that he, right. he coaches more the way you described the peacemaker than, uh, let's say the Mike Leach school of coaching as an example. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's, what's interesting to me because I think there is room for pretty much any personality type in college sports or any sports really. And I don't, you know, I don't know that any coach at a high level is going to be easygoing, right? They're not going to be like, okay, guys, we're just going to, you know, kind of screw around today and have a good time. <laughs> they, they've all got, they've all got agendas and plans and things that they're trying to accomplish. You got to be a driven person to do that. You can't, you can just kind of go with the flow in a lot of senses. But I also think that there are a lot of coaches who are self-confident enough to go, you know what? Like, I'm not stressed about the image that I project. I'm not stressed about like what people think of me, all this other stuff. I, I think there's a number of coaches, like you said, with Larry Johnson, some other guys who are just like, I'm good at what I do and I don't worry about it. And I don't need to be performative in any way. I just kind of go with the flow. And I, I appreciate guys like that. I enjoy coaches like Jeff Halfley. Jeff Halfley is not a high, strong Urban Meyer type. Ryan Day, I don't think is a high, strong Urban Meyer right. type. That guy is a dude who just kind of knows that he's really, really smart and knows exactly how to coach a football team. And he's super confident in that. And that's enough sometimes. That's enough to make you really, really successful in sports. What um, I find what I find really interesting is to see, you know, you have, and this is one of the things that that they've said, because I've taken some of these assessments more than once. So like yeah. Strengths Finder, I've done they change. <laughs> at least at least twice. That's right. May, maybe three times, but at least twice. Um, they they do change. And it's interesting because in theory they shouldn't change that much, right? Like your right. Like who you are, your your personality, you know the the nuts and bolts of you. Your experiences change, so maybe how you express some of those personality traits. Um, but it's really interesting to see, you know, how those have developed over time. And so you wonder, okay, twenty years from now, how will Ryan Day's personality manifest itself any differently than it than it right. does today? You know, that's uh, those are kind of interesting uh, concepts. He seems exactly what you described today, but you wonder, you know, when, when the hair's all gray, that's right. Uh, how long, how long is that sustainable? That's a good point. 
Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll, we'll see what the evolution is. We'll see what kind of uh, personality the, the staff takes on because that always changes, especially when you have so much staff turnover. Like, you never know what the vibe you're going to be getting. But hopefully we'll get to find out. And hopefully, you know, college sports come back sooner than later. Uh, we, we whip this, you know, COVID-19 thing and, and kick its ass a little bit and we'll do what we need to do. And I don't know. I, I'm optimistic. I'll be honest, Andy. Like I'm feeling a little optimistic right now. I think people understand that they want to get back to normal. And I think most people understand what we got to do to get back to normal. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling okay about it. We'll see what happens in the next few months, but we'll definitely keep monitoring it and talking about it and having a great dub cast. So this was a good time. This is a good dub cast. I'm happy with it. Uh, thank you, Andy, obviously having a great time with you this week. Um, and for everybody listening, we'll see you next time. So I'm Johnny. I'm Andy. Peace out.